Well, ladies, I'd like to begin tonight's hardback radio with talking about what the best sellers have been that's reported to us from the independent bookstores throughout the nation and compiled by the American Booksellers Association. And it's always kind of fun to see the evolution of the bestseller list. And there's typically three or four new additions to the list and typically a couple that hang on that most of us can't quite understand why or how. And then there's always a few surprises. Jesse, do you have any comments on, on the latest list for the last week? Sure. Um, at number one on the fiction hardcover bestseller list, I'm always pleased to, when Louise Penny's latest pops up. She's at number one for her most recent in the Three Pines Mysteries. This one is called The Madness of Crowds. And um, she's such a lovely writer um, and her books are so fun and they're much deeper often than your typical uh, your typical mystery genre. Um, she includes a lot of um, a lot of poetry and um, art and uh, as food. well as food. And food. Let's yeah. not forget Croissants. those books. Oh my gosh, those <laughs> books often make me so hungry and ticked off that we don't have a little bistro in, uh, in Moab like we do in these books. Anyway, she's a number one this week, last weekend. I'm really, really pleased. She's a great, gorgeous writer. Hanging on uh, way up at the top is Midnight Library by Matt Haig. This is... Um, at number two right now and it's been on the bestseller list pretty much since it came out i'd say at least six or eight months does that sound right and i've enjoyed some of his previous writing i did read this one just to see what the hype was about and wasn't that impressed with mm. the midnight library i'm sorry to say so i'm a little bit it's very um oh easy listening if you will um it's a it's just kind of a one long self help platitude or something <laughs> if you will um, no surprises in that one nothing wrong with it it was fine it just didn't uh didn't have much substance um those are those are my comments for the two top oh i will say i'm very excited i haven't read this one yet it's debuted at number nine which is pretty impressive the guide by peter heller mm -hmm. um his previous books have all been really good his first one the do uh, fiction anyway the dog stars has got to be one of my favorite books in the world so really excited to read the guide by peter heller i would echo the dog stars uh, did you read the river I did. I've read all of them, at least all of his fiction. And what did you think of that? Because this book has some of the same lead characters as The River. And hmm. frankly, I found The River to be pretty implausible. Although fiction is fiction, so yeah, sure. you can do anything you want with your storyline. But, you know, using fire as a protagonist and this murderer down in this canyon. And I don't know, it just didn't strike honestly to me i uh i'm sort of hesitant to say this uh, out loud because i always <laughs> want to <laughs> want to uh encourage people to read and and particularly an author i'm fond of but i think that since the dog stars his books have progressively gotten a little bit weaker the second one the painter was really 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 good although it wasn't as just earth-shakingly wonderful as and heartbreaking as the dog stars and they've successively they're still fine celine was was good loved. see now i would have put celine way 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 down the list i, I liked well i was gonna say i did i really liked yeah. her character the um the the older woman who's i forget she was a secret service sharpshooter or something or a detective 
I've forgotten and, most uh, of <laughs> The story itself wasn't that great, but I really liked her character. Hmm. Um, I thought she was a, a really cool. It's nice to see an older female get to be the badass in the story, right? But it is an interesting point. Sometimes the debut novel has been worked on for so long and sweated over and has mm -hmm. been rewritten and it is so good because it's it's that first thing and then how do you match up to that and i'm not sure he has yet so i mean i want to read the guide and i will looking forward to it or it's the flop where the the debut novel has some potential and then they get better and better you know as they kind of uh increase from there and then you've got the phenomenon with really well-known and excellent established writers I think they get to a point in their career where their editors just don't tell them no. Well, it's interesting. And Have you read The God of Small Things, Arundhati mm -hmm. Roy? Long ago, yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. that was one of those where it just it just hit. That was shockingly good. Shockingly good. And uh, she's only read written one other novel. And I have to say it was it was almost shockingly not good. Mediocre, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not good at all. Yeah. And, and a good, it, it didn't seem like it had the editing that you would have hoped for. Yeah. Can we go back to Louise Penny? Yes, please. Mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you, Jesse, from a, a librarian perspective, how do you go about buying the number of books for a title like that, knowing that it's, you know, it's her 19th or 25th bestseller? You know the line is going to be long for uh, weights. Uh, what do you do? Well, there are a few authors, I've been doing this long enough to just know, there's a few authors you're just going to want multiple copies of, and uh, she's become one of them. Sure. Um, also on, you know, I, I look at the, uh, I look at the whole, how many holds are on a book, and when it reaches a certain threshold, I've got this awesome bookstore down the street <laughs> that al almost <laughs> always has more <laughs> books in stock, and so I don't have to worry sometimes about ordering two right away, I'll just wait wait till those holds get up and then I can get a second or third copy. So I right imagine away. you guys have a fiduciary responsibility not to order too many copies because you can't have a year from now five of the same title on the shelf, it's, perhaps? It's true, although although sometimes we do. Um, you want to be very responsible with taxpayer funds, absolutely. Um, we're, we try to be very careful about that, but um, at, at times, so many people want to read the same book. Uh, that's mm -hmm. we, we want to keep keep the readers well fed and uh, try not to make them wait too long <laughs> for their turn. So we do periodically have to withdraw multiple copies. And um, well, Sherry, as a lead buyer for mm -hmm. books, you you see four or five months in advance mm -hmm. a Louise Penny. We were getting pre-orders four or five months in advance. How do you? Uh, try to gauge how many to bring in. It, it's similar, but something like this where you just know, in fact, I under, I underbought, say, for example, on this one, thinking, oh, you know, there's going to be that handful of maybe five to ten who you just know are going come to come grab that book. But, um, you know, it's there is a bit of intuition on there, too, mm -hmm. that you you're kind of looking out ahead and saying what's going to be hot, what's not. But then there's certain things like this one you just know. But, I, you know, I still my my boss is in the house and I <laughs> and mm -hmm. I, I tend to be <laughs> I tend to be uh, somewhat conservative. But um, I think buying is such a it's an art. 
uh, you know, tr trying to figure out what your community wants. And that's the key is the community. I remember yeah. going into the bookstore in Aspen mm -hmm. and their entire front room are stacks and stacks of hardbacks. The so same thing with the bookstore in Edwards. You know, 10, 15, 20 copies of the same hardback. And if we were to ever do that here, we would probably go out of business really yeah. quickly. So it's a different different demographic, different buyers. But and you yeah, I was going to say also these bestseller lists are worth their weight in gold. Indeed. That we get to sit with all the other independent resources out there, the bookstores, libraries, and we get to look at what people are reading out there and then bring things in in that way. We stay pretty close to these this bestseller list mm -hmm. to figure out what to bring in. And both the bookstore and the library have these bestseller lists posted mm -hmm. in their establishments. So if anyone's yeah. ever interested in saying, oh, what's the country reading that maybe I missed, uh, come on in and ask. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, we have it posted at the front desk, and also I update that weekly on our website if you go to Quick Links. Yeah, Excellent. yeah, it's, it's fun to watch that, that list. Events, uh, Sherry's, we've been a little bit under, under the radar ever since COVID in terms of events, and I think uh, this month is no different. No different. We do have a few things maybe shaping up in uh, the late fall, but we'll keep you all posted on what those will be when uh, we're, we're sure of what they are. <laughs> <laughs> However, I know the Grand County Public Library has begun to do more and more events. And Jesse, might you remind us on what you have on Slate? Sure. Well, I'm really pleased to announce that a virtual album that we decided to put together this summer has um, finished. It's posted online. Some of you may have heard um, that we were uh, asking community members to send us photos of their animals, pets, wild, local wildlife. Um, and uh, uh, that was part of our summer reading program, which was called Tales and Tales, had an animal theme. So we thought, what a great way to celebrate our animal friends. So. A Cavalcade of Critters, the Animals of Moab community photo album, is easy to find online at the library's website. There's a link right on our front page. You can also find the link from our events page. Additionally, we've made a tiny URL um, to make it easier to just find it online. If you go to tinyurl.com slash moabanimals, that will also take you to a Cavalcade of Critters photo album and uh, this is just an extremely cheerful and fun <laughs> collection of photos um, particularly as always the children's um, submissions and the captions that they sent in for their animal friends are really delightful um, so cavalcade of critters is online you might even recognize some of these creatures have as um, uh, denizens of your neighborhood um, we're putting together also an evening concert at the library on Friday, September 17th, around 7 p.m. We've got this really nice little courtyard in the back of the library um, and thought it would be fun to have an outside concert, weather permitting. We have um, a fellow named Arthur is joining us from Columbia. He is here um, in Moab doing some recording. He's got a very energetic and uh, colorful band that he, he'll be playing solo, but he has, um, he's playing a lot of their same songs and music. And their name is uh, Sharangu. Let's see if I can get the, get the name properly here. Yeah, so um, 
oh, I'm so sorry, Shangalu, Shangalu. So Arthur from Colombia describes his music as a combination of reggae, funk, Caribbean style, sukus, Afrobeat, bularenge, and cumbia. Hmm. And this is going to prove to be a really fun and, uh, and colorful music style, I do believe. So it's going to be free the evening of September 17th, a Friday night, about 7 p.m. in the library's courtyard. We'll have light refreshments and enjoy some free tunes outside. September 23rd is a Thursday evening, and in partnership with the Moab Festival of Science, the library is going to be showing a film called Picture a Scientist. And this movie chronicles the groundswell of researchers who are writing a new chapter for women scientists. Um, some of them chronicle their years of experience in the, scientists, uh, in the sciences, um, experiencing everything from brutal harassment to years of subtle slights. Um, we follow some of these incredibly brilliant women through their um, through their, their environments as they tell stories and, and talk about how things are changing and what needs to change in the sciences to make it more welcoming, uh, equitable, and open to everyone. One more to mention, this is October 1st. Oh, and that's gonna either be at Star Hall or the ball fields, depending on weather, COVID. Um, it's gonna be following another event that's taking place at Star Hall with the Moab Festival of Science and directly afterwards we will start this film. There's also gonna be a panel discussion of some uh, lovely uh, local, local scientists um, to discuss this film. All right, October 1st, also in the ball fields at 7.30 or darkish time, we are going to um, screen the Wild Rivers Film Tour, and it's uh, presented in partnership with the Wild Rivers Film Tour Organization and American Rivers. It's a celebration of wild rivers and a call to action for protecting more of all of the rivers that we cherish. So again, that will be um, October 1st, 7.30 p.m. in the ball fields, and um, bring your own chair or blanket for this film, and I hope to see you there. And that's it for the moment. It's an exciting lineup. Yes. I'm really curious about the, the women scientists uh -huh. um, feature. Uh -huh. After having just read Finding the Mother Tree, Suzanne uh -huh. Samard's book, uh -huh. and, you know, it's autobiographical, and a good part of that, she talks about the frustration as a, a woman scientist and simply uh -huh. not getting not only a lack of respect, but almost a derision from her male colleagues especially early on in her career and, and the results she was finding. And a friend of mine was very curious about how you fit the autobiographical nature of a book. And I found it worked really well. It really opened my eyes to the world of science and that innate sexism that pervades. Mm -hmm. And it's fun and exciting for our community to have so many vibrant women we do. within the field mm -hmm. that uh, I just, it thrills me. Yeah. It's, it's changing rapidly, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, it's time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great. Well, it's time for question of the day on the Radio Book Club, KZMU 90.1, 106.7. Thanks for tuning in. Well, this is not a, a, <laughs> a hard question. But have either of you ever had a life-changing moment in a library 
be it public or private? Mm. And would you care to share what that might have been? Or any library mm. that has affected you deeply moving forward? Oh, that's really interesting. And maybe I'll give you two a moment to think because the reason I, I brought this up was I just spent uh, three days packing a good friend's library who passed away about a year ago. And every time that I go into a library from a perspective of a purchaser, I, I get very unique insight into who that person was. And in this case, Charlie Johnston was a very unique, multi-layered individual. And I thought I knew him. I, I, he and I were friends for 15 years. And yet when I started handling each and every one of his 5,000 volumes, I realized I had no idea who this man was. Hmm. He probably had 35 books on the ruffed grouse. And I asked his daughter, and, and she could tie that directly to a period when he was living in Minnesota. He had probably 100 books on African safari and yet he had never been to, to Africa. And I asked her, what was the connection? And he, she just said, well, he just loved Africa. He had a, a huge collection on the leakies and the archaeology and anthropology of early man. Hmm. And then he had, and this blew me away, this huge poetry section. And I know Charlie was a writer, but I don't think he wrote poetry. And that kind of floored me because he kind of had this, maybe I'm misleading my, my own thoughts, but he had kind of this gruff personality. Mm. And yet here he had beautiful poetry mm. on his shelves right next to his hunting books. Uh. And um, it was an emotional time. Uh. And I'm still processing going through this library and how it's going to affect me as now we handle these books again and hopefully find new lives for them. That's interesting. It leads me down kind of a bit of a rabbit hole, the question, to kind of skirt around and come in because it, it has me thinking about a friend from many years. I've had this friend for a very long time. We met at a bookstore, the first bookstore I ever worked in called Chapter 2 Books in Logan up in northern Utah. And she was originally from Estonia. She's about 25 years older than me. And she had um, bought some, a house and a little bit of uh, land up in Fishhaven, Idaho, which is just up near Bear Lake. And had been living there for some years, originally from Estonia um, via, and then she was in San Francisco for many years, ended up up there, wanted to live in the country. We met, and it was one of those instantaneous friendships. And um, so she'd invite me up to her little, her little French cottage, really, um, in Fishhaven. And I'd go up through Logan Canyon, and uh, there was some point where we got to know each other, and I would spend time house-sitting for her when she was going to Estonia and other places. And one summer I spent three months... I'd go down the canyon and work in the bookstore and come back up. And she had 
It was like sitting in someone's, it was her library of books, magazines, and, and especially art books. And then she had pirated, I don't know if I can say that here, but <laughs> a bunch of videos. And so it was like I had this self-education, kind of a cultural education just from her library. And it was there that I read like the letters um, of Van Gogh and Theo. She had collection of and of, of so many different. It was like I was put. I was filling in the holes of my education, and I just you know lie on her couch or out on her hammock, and and um, that also led me to um, this kind of fascination with uh, Rainer Maria Rilke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She had everything of Rilke's, and then and then that's where I learned that Rilke and um, August Rodin had actually um, been connected. Uh, Rilke was Rodin's uh, secretary for a while there in Paris, and it was through that library that I ended up. Um, I spent some time in Paris um, with Rodin's work in the Rodin archives, or they call it the Rodin library, where I was um, putting together a little uh, book of poetry on Rodin's work. So it was like her kind of like full and eclectic library kind of led me to um, the Rodin library in Paris, which was archives and library, where I spent three months sort of, sort of looking through the the books that Rodin loved, you know, the, the 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 letters that were written, and I will say this: I got to read one of um, Rilke's letters to Rodin, and there was a little coffee stain on there. <laughs> and you know, I was like, if I if I licked that coffee stain, <laughs> I would have the, the DNA the DNA <laughs> of Rilke in my body. <laughs> How did you resist, or did you? I know. And then I, I told Andy this. At one point, I, uh, I got to see Rodin's uh, just hundreds of little sketchbooks, tiny little leather. Every one of them were different, hundreds of them. And they had them in these boxes. And I decided to put one of my own pieces of hair, <laughs> like a bookmark, mm -hmm. into one of those. Oh, and so now my DNA is sitting in there. But anyway, that's kind of the library link. And that's what makes me think of when you ask that question. And that, that's so beautiful because I wrote down here <laughs> Rodan because I thought I was giving you a softball. Yeah, and no, I, it's I true. was pretty sure you're yeah. going to go there. And yet yeah. how you got there is just this beautiful linkage of yeah. what literature and art can do. Yeah. I love it. Wow. Anything, Jesse? Sure. Um, working at the library, I've had I've had arguably life-changing events here and there. It mostly um, mostly centers around other people's awakening, literary, you know, literary awakenings or, or um, acts of service that have been meaningful to them. But honestly, I keep thinking of my grandmother's loft. So um, mm. my grandmother lived on a houseboat on the Willamette River in Oregon, just outside of Portland. And her loved that as a kid, of course. This, uh, it was a two-story, big, tall, kind of tall, skinny two-story. It was always swaying <laughs> on the water. And up a spiral staircase to this little crow's nest loft was where she wrote. She was a published author and had lots of um, really cool literary friends like Ursula K. Le Guin, um, Jean Owl, and uh, or all, I guess, and um, 
Oh, Madeline Langle was another one she wow. was friends with. But That's anyways, a cast of. <laughs> I grew up in a, yeah, she, yeah, she had some, I mean, and more, um, more I could mention, but she had a really beautifully weird eclectic collection of books. And as a little kid, I lived in a pretty sheltered, had a pretty sheltered life. My parents were um, religious and strict in some ways. And um, her library opened doors um, to a whole other world she had, as well as really great literature and a lot of gorgeous antique books. Um, she had lots of books on metaphysics and the interpretation of dreams and um, arcane symbology. And as a, you know, a young, I'd say I probably started investigating those when I was about 11, 12. Those were just so fascinating to me and just sort of opened my eyes to a completely different way of looking at the world. Um, and probably had some influence on, on decisions and directions that I made later on. But my grandmother's cozy little loft, you could look out over the river. She had this little day bed up there that had a, a zebra print bedspread, I remember, and her old manual typewriter, and it just smelled of old books and endlessly fascinating. And art books, I remember discovering Georgia O'Keeffe at about 10 years old after looking at some of her art books. and. Um, so I'm going to say my grandmother's library was yeah. probably. Is it, I love that. This is fascinating. Well. All three of us start off with a very personal story mm -hmm. of a library of just a normal person. Mm -hmm. I almost expected the great libraries of the world to come out of this conversation, the New York Public Library, the Library of Congress, of those in Paris and, and Spain and so on, and yet we brought it back to home, really. Mm-hmm. And someone's curated library, especially if it's like a whole collection of their tastes over time, mm -hmm. is it's like reading someone's memories or reading someone's well, the, the history of someone's life, I feel like, goes through that. Isn't that know? one of the first things you look at when you're in someone's house oh, for the first time? absolutely. And if they don't have or, one, I'm like, or, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, worse these, yet. These people who have no books. <laughs> Yes. I'm like, <laughs> like, never mind. <laughs> yeah, I always go look at their, their record, record collection, although that's not a thing anymore, really. Um, oh, it is too. And their books. Yes, yes, among a few of us still. So anyway. you just grab their phone and say, what do you, what do you have queued up on Spotify? <laughs> so at least you can see their music section. And I will say very quickly, um, it was life-changing when I went up the stairs of the bookmobile at my hometown yes, yes. when I was probably five and or four, maybe three. Mm -hmm. I, I don't even know how old. Went up and I have the most distinct memory of the bookmobile. And the first book I ever got from there was Are You My Mother by mm -hmm. Eastman. Mm -hmm. oh. <laughs> and that was, I remember my mother took me there. I don't know if my siblings were with me, but just, I. it was like, what? You know, this is a, a book thing on wheels. <laughs> you know, this, delivers is this is a library. Yeah, yes. yeah. So. Amazing. Yeah, we had a bookmobile in our community. Did you, Jesse? Yeah, I lived, grew up about 30 minutes out of the nearest town out in the sticks. So as you can imagine, the arrival of the bookmobile every two weeks was a big That's deal. That's a big deal. That yeah. and the Scholastic yeah. Book Day when yes. they brought in the books from Scholastic yes. and they unpacked the boxes. Yes. Yeah. I always wanted to be the, the person to unpack <laughs> The scholastic book boxes. I always thought, I can't believe there's like 
10 or 15 or 20 in there the, of the same book. <laughs> it was like candy somehow. There was that many. Someone's trying to call through. Yeah, we're not taking live calls on the Radio Book Club, so if you want to hold off that phone call till after the show, that would be wonderful. And this is the Radio Book Club, and we're just reminiscing on uh, some libraries that have deeply affected our lives. Let's segue into what we're reading. We all kind of curate what we're reading. We, no one has enough time to read everything. And so, uh, speaking for myself, you have to s- somewhat make a conscious decision of what to pick up next. So, let's start with sharing. What are you okay. reading? Yeah, I definitely wanted to um, give a shout out to, and speaking of community and a local author, um, it's called Starry Sky Adventures, Utah, and our own Crystal White, and is it Betty Maya? Betty Maya Foote. Betty Maya Foote, yes. yes. Um, are the both authors and photographers of this new falcon guide to the starry sky, but of course, I think a lot of folks know that Crystal is our local, um, she's an actual certified interpretive guide for the skies and has been very uh, connected to getting the Dark Sky Initiative. Um, she actually takes people out on uh, sh- her own. It's called uh, Moab Astronomy Tours. She takes people out on and, and guides them through the night sky. And then Betty Maya also grew up here in Moab. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. And I don't know her, but her, I think it was her mother came in looking for the book. She bought out <laughs> everything oh, we had. I <laughs> and uh, I hope, you know, if Crystal or Betty Maya are actually listening, we are, it's not easy to keep these in. So that's a good sign. People are really excited about um, looking through looking through this book, taking it out with them. It is what it says. It is a guide, a literal guide to your adventure as it includes the night sky. So, and what's really cool is they've divided this between, there are certain sections where you get to learn more about astrophotography. So there's, you know, uh, certain places where you can, you can actually be led to where um, you, you're gonna be able to um, take pictures of the sky and they give uh, helpful tips on that kind of thing. And then the other, uh, Kind of the other way they've divided this book is uh, stargazing adventures. And so where you can go for a darker sky. And they give you everything from the campsite, the adventure rating, you know, um, best seasons to be there, supplies to take. And then something like, for example, stargazing from Natural Bridges Campground. They'll, um, they tell you what to look up and see. Um, of course, from there, look up the Big Dipper, Draco, Cassiopeia, tell you how to you know, find those, and then they give you these fun little night sky challenges. Can you follow the curve of the handle of the Big Dipper to the next brightest star, which appears red in color? Which constellation is the red star Arcturus a part? Is, is the red star Arcturus a part of? So it's this incredible, you know, just it gives you um, t- certain... Uh, you know, I guess that you'd say adventures, but everything is directed and focused on not only 
mapping the night sky for yourself, but photographing the night sky. Wow, so, what a treasure. So congratulations, I want to say, to Crystal and uh, Betty Maya. I've got to interject that Crystal White is um, our local NASA ambassador in the library, and she are partnering up in uh, late October to do an event um, around the James Webb uh, Space Telescope that's getting launched oh, in mid-October. Amazing. Yeah, so it's going to work in concert with Hubble, and um, it's going to be able to view a different spectrum of light and put information together with Hubble to... Um, to just see a lot more about, about the solar system in the universe and um, the hunt for exoplanets is particularly exciting. Very. So yeah, look for that in October. She's, a, she's amazing. More women scientists. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Jesse, what's on your huge pile? <laughs> well, um, probably the most amazing book that I've read this entire year, and I know I'm really late to this party, mm -hmm. is the book Underland a deep time journey by robert mcfarlane i just can't say enough about this book and i know you radio book club listeners have probably <laughs> heard it before um several several others have already um have already reviewed this it's wildly fascinating he's a really good writer poetic and lyrical um he takes us all over these deep deep places uh in the world from caving and spelunking to deep, deep mines, even under the ocean floor. Um, and uh, and uh, like he explores, he takes us exploring in the, the underground underneath Paris, a lot of which is, is hidden and kept very, very secret. Um, secret raves that you have to know the, the secret location and passwords to find. And he takes us under the ice in Greenland and Norway and Antarctica takes us to a project in Finland where they're um, burying nuclear waste for the next, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. And um, along with very interesting science and exploration, he includes all of these very, very human stories um, from poetry to um, adventure stories, heroic deeds, mythology, um, human longing and struggles to find the extraordinary. This book was so poignant and fascinating too. There's just a lot of really, really interesting science and geology. I loved all of the uh, vocabulary words he includes from other languages around the world that describe geology and weather and um, you know geological formations. Anyway, um, I'm not a person who reads a lot of nonfiction, but this just this just just from the first page. Um, to the very end, I was completely absorbed, and I just can't recommend this enough. It's Underland, A Deep Time Journey by Robert McFarlane. Some of you may know him from previous books. Um, he, he did those, these beautiful art and poetry books called The Lost Words and The Lost Spells. Spells. Yeah. 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 yeah, both of them just really... Yeah, he's really, a poet. Really beautiful. Yeah, and he's an amazing, amazing yeah. writer. And he's a fairly young mm -hmm. writer mm -hmm. still. Mm -hmm. uh, he's British, been doing the craft for a long time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, great writing. Definitely. I picked up, I took a couple weeks off and threw a whole bag of books into mm -hmm. the, the trailer that we were traveling in. And at the top of my list was Gretel Ehrlich's brand new piece called Unsolaced, Along the Way 
to all that is. And at least for my formative years of reading, uh, I was living in Philadelphia when I read The Solace of Open Spaces, which was Gretel Ehrlich's 1985 uh, nonfiction memoir of the time that she uh, recovered in Wyoming. And I think every state must have an author that, that highlights a state. You know, we think of Edward Abbey in Utah. I think of Gretel Ehrlich in Wyoming. And that book made such a profound impact on me living in Philly and missing the West that I really look forward to reading Unsolaced. And it did not un- disappoint. It did not make me cheery or mm. happy. Mm. It's a very sobering look at the 35 years or so of her writing career. And what she does is in Unsolaced is she revisits a lot of the writing that she had previously done, whether it's the time she spent in Kosovo or in Japan. You mentioned Greenland with, with McFarlane's book. Probably the most sobering and in many cases tragic chapter is where she goes back to Greenland and visits all her old friends that she's been visiting for many, many years. And she relays how that whole culture is is dying a quick death because of, of global change climate change and they simply can't go hunting because the ice flows are no longer there and these cultures know nothing else that's their entire lives are built around the ability to hunt and fish and it just brought tears and i i wish every congressman and senator and and uh, those in power would read that one chapter because if anyone doesn't believe in climate change and what's coming down the pike, uh, Gretel Ehrlich's uh, writing certainly uh, would would bring that home. And she has just had tragedy after tragedy in her life. And it wasn't a week after I finished this book that I heard on, on NPR that Neil Conan had passed away. Um, and Neil was recently married to Gretel. And yeah, and wow. Neil was uh, what was the NPR show that he did? Yeah, uh, what was the something about the nation? He was the most brilliant thinker uh, on earth, and then he got brain cancer, and his recovery was was going to Wyoming and hanging out with Gretel. Wow! And uh, he talk of the nation, talk of the nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, yep. his voice just captivated me, and I didn't even know they were together. And so after reading that and then finding out that Neil had passed away, it just oh, mm-hmm. hit my soul deeply. Yeah. Andy, what were the what would the were the years span between both those books? Nineteen eighty five was uh, the solace of solace, open spaces mm-hmm. to two thousand twenty, basically. Yeah. For unsolaced. Wow. I love the bookend books, you know, even though in this case it doesn't paint a pretty picture. But it's reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. No, it's a deeply moving book. Yeah. You're up, Sherry. Okay. I'm trying to decide here. I, I had, uh, hopefully, my friend Matthew Jonasaint won't be too upset if I mention him on the radio. He's also... He's a DJ uh, here. He's a DJ and here a bookseller. and a bookseller. So uh, we've kind of had a bit of a joke. I once told him that I liked 
everyone knows I like Joan Didion stuff enough to eat it. That's what I told him <laughs> that I wanted to eat her words. And uh, recently, uh, he he read so. <laughs> there's an author. Her name is Yelena Moscovich, and I read her her second novel called Virtuoso. Was trying to get Matthew to read that, and finally, she just came out uh, just 2020, maybe even 21, 2021, with a book called A Door Behind a Door. And just last week, Matthew ended up reading this this particular book, and when I saw him. In person, he just finished it like maybe an hour before I saw him. And he said, you know, this book was good enough to eat. (laughs) 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 Now, does that mean this book is good enough for everyone to eat? Of course not. But what is this book? Yelena Moscovich is, uh, she emigrated from uh, the Ukraine to Milwaukee in 91. She's not that old. I think she's in her maybe 33, 34, 35. Um, and then uh, kind of spent her high school years and early, um, like, late teens uh, in Milwaukee and then moved to Paris. So her books tend to have this themes. You know, there's uh, sort of this immigrant kind of coming out of the uh, Russia or the U- Ukraine. And there's this kind of... Um, story that takes place in Milwaukee and sometimes like in her earlier one uh, she ends up in Paris so it's interesting that it is fiction um, but what's really kind of amazing about Moscovich is if you like um, you know experimental and and sort of playing with form she does that a lot in this book Um, she has very astute and wonderful, wonderfully queer themes. Um, there's love stories that are, there's a love story that is combined with uh, a surreal adventure or rabbit hole that takes her down into the um, Russian uh, uh, Milwaukee un- underground. <laughs> and so, her books tend to get they start quite real and tend to get more and more and more surreal until and she's always kind of adding new characters and until you're not sure what's happening but in some ways you don't care because her prose are just so good and so smart and and so if you kind of like a more lynchian uh, with with queer themes and uh, you know getting to know a little bit of like Milwaukee in this kind of surreal way, I would say pick up a door behind a door, Yelena Moscovich, and see what you think. See if you if if you like her, if you want to eat her words. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Good enough to eat. Yep. <laughs> Jesse, what do you have that's uh, fulfilling and nourishing? I would love to. Um, to jump into graphic novels a little bit. Um, uh, Many people don't consider those adult fodder, and I would argue that uh, graphic novels are just a really uh, interesting and versatile art form of their own. Um, And the library um, is constantly buying new ones for the adult section. Many of them are, are definitely belong in the adult section. One that I just, read the library just got is um, particularly stunning artwork this is called skip 
by Molly Mendoza. She's a very young woman from Portland, Oregon, it looks like. Her art um, is so, so strange and unusual. It, it brings to mind surrealists like Dolly. I also see Moreau um, in her art. The story itself is really surreal. In fact, after the first section, I had to double check that it was even the same story. I, I thought maybe I, there, there were multiple stories, but there is a, there is a storyline. It's very, very odd and lovely. It's a, I think a post-apocalyptic world. A little boy lives with maybe his grandmother, an older woman who's a guardian. She has to leave to go check some stuff out. They leave a very, live a very peaceful and uh, solitary existence on the side of a lake. She leaves, he's supposed to stay home and take care of the lake um and keep keep their little hut clean uh he is d he goes on a little adventure of course and bizarreness ensues but it is just a really i don't know it's so original it's really almost impossible to classify um mostly i'm completely enamored with the artwork and just the freshness of this book it is unlike any any other graphic novelist um that I've come across. So I highly recommend if you are interested in this medium, uh, check out Skip by Molly Mendoza. Also recently acquired Meadowlark by uh, Ethan Hawke. Yes, the actor who's also a writer uh, and his illustrator Greg Ruth have written Meadowlark, a coming of age crime story. That's definitely a gritty, violent crime story, but really excellent, um, really beautiful uh, illustrations and um, pretty good story. Come check out the library's graphic novel collection. You might be surprised. Uh, we've got a lot there and it's a worthy, it's a worthy collection and it's definitely, um, definitely something worth uh, checking out. And the Moab Music Festival just brought in a yep. graphic novel writer. George Takai. That's right. Maybe you've course. heard of George oh, Takai before. I just sold it off. Uh, they called us enemy and mm -hmm. that's the time uh, it relates the time that he is a young, very young child was in the in one of the uh, internment camps mm -hmm. for Japanese Americans uh, in World War II. And so I hope uh, you all caught his performance where he uh, spoke in word and music relating that time with the Moab Music Festival. Great opportunity. Yeah. I'm going to change uh, gears a little bit and go back to Charlie Johnston's library and relate it to to a book that's actually out of print and very expensive, and so I don't expect uh, the hordes to go out and get this. But as as I and, and Charlie's daughter were going through the basement, and this is a picture of this, this dank basement with a slight odor of, of mouse droppings perhaps, with 5,000 volumes just stacked literally everywhere. You imagine there's, there's little treasures waiting to be found and we found a series of notebooks that had study sketches from an artist who I wasn't all that familiar with. And so we began to piece this story together that back in the mid-1970s, Charlie and his then-wife Patricia Johnston, who were living in Afton, Minnesota, made a trip out to, to Death Valley to visit... Um, a woman who was the sister-in-law of the artist Philip R. Goodwin. Now, in the 1970s, no one was familiar with Philip R. Goodwin. He was an artist primarily in the 20s, 30s. He passed away in 1935. 
and he was known as a sporting artist. His artwork would have been found probably in every hunting cabin throughout the Midwest. Calendars, uh, Remington uh, shotgun shells would have hired Goodwin to, to do artwork for their calendars. But Charlie and Patricia met with Goodwin's sister-in-law, and through that meeting, they were able to acquire a small portfolio of study sketches of Goodwin's. Fast forward to 2001, when the great uh, art book writer Larry Lynn Peterson meets with Charlie and Patricia and begins this odyssey of, of learning about the artist Philip R. Goodwin, and he puts out this 10-pound tome on the artwork of Philip R. Goodwin called America's Sporting and Wildlife Artist. And it really was, again, very emotional to understand the connection between these two friends of mine, especially Charlie Johnston, basically rediscovering an artist who passed away in the 1930s whose work had gone into obscurity. Through that connection, they meet the author, Larry Peterson, through the publication of this book, all of a sudden, Philip R. Goodwin's artwork is extremely valuable, especially his oils, his posters, his calendars, and it's iconic. We've all seen it, and yet none of us really knew who the artist was. And so I've been pouring through this, this huge book and absolutely drinking every word in as I handle the 70-some uh, study sketches that we wow. were able to purchase of Philip R. Goodwin's. And uh, it's just, ah, you know, literature and art. Again, the connection yeah. is, is really deep. Larry Lynn Peterson's Philip R. Goodwin, America's Sporting and Wildlife Artist. Well, this is the Radio Book Club. We're down to that uh, speed round. Last we have round. about a minute left for each of you to uh, go through one last book. Okay. Um, I just want to talk about Joy Harjo's new memoir. Of course, she's in her second term as the 23rd Poet Laureate of the U.S. And she, this is a bit of a bookend with Crazy Brave that came out uh, some years ago. Um, that was her first memoir. This is the second one, uh, Poet Warrior. And what I'd say about this one, if you've read Crazy Brave, we really got uh, some some real details about kind of how she grew up. And what I'd say about this one is we're almost, it, it almost is a spiritual um, memoir. There's, uh, you really get a sense for what uh, has in not only inspired her, but kind of her um, relationship, I would say, to ritual and, uh, and also the emerging of her own voice and this, what she calls the poet warrior uh, through the lens of a lot of her ancestors. So you really get to know in this one, uh, brothers, mothers, gra grandmothers that came through her, her life and who, you know, uh, the inspiration that came through those specific uh, folks. And if I can in this, just I'll just do it very quickly. I just want to read a few of her words. Uh, there you are, voice, said poet warrior as she began, writing poetry because there was no other way to speak. 
It was unlike any voice from within her. It wasn't her little girl voice or the defensive teenage girl voice or the tamp down voice so I don't get hurt voice or the leave me alone voice. She didn't know this voice at first. She watched it emerge from afar, admiring it, at once fearful of it. It was a red bird on a branch of wind. Mm. Mm, wow. Joy Harja, the yep. poet, poet warrior. warrior. Just Beautiful. hot off the press. Nice. Beautiful. Jesse, speed round. All right. I am almost done listening to the audiobook of The Sweetness of Water by Nathan Harris. Um, this is a really, really great story. It takes place in the South. Uh, just after the Civil War has ended, the South has lost their are officials from the north uh, down in these southern towns to make sure that they're abiding by the new rules all of the slaves have been emancipated but now what like many of them have they're glad for their freedom but they've got many of them have few resources and um and what to do next so this is a story of two brothers um that w had been slaves until just a few few weeks before this story begins um and it is so well done the uh, characters are so richly drawn. They stand alone. You could write a novel about each of these characters. I think they're just so believable and their relationships um, in some cases are just ex really well done. Keen observer of human nature, regardless of the time frame. Um, also, I can recommend the audiobook itself. The reader is uh, someone named William Demerit. He does a really good job, really, really good with the different voices. can highly recommend The Sweetness of Water by Nathan Harris. And we will have these lists posted uh, both on the Grand County Public Library website and the bookshop.org back of beyond website. So if you missed any of these, uh, you can pick them up. My last speed round pick is a book coming out this week. It's by Scott Graham. He's becoming a very popular mystery writer. Uh, his previous book was Arch's Enemy. It's a National Park series book. And I'm going to read the blurb. When suspicious deaths befall a whitewater rafting expedition through Cataract Canyon in Canyonlands National Park, Archaeologist Chuck Bender and his family recognize evil intent lies behind the tragedies. <laughs> the big difference with this, which is his seventh book in the National Park Mystery Series, is the Park Service is, is mostly missing in this novel, and it's mostly Chuck Bender, the archaeologist, whereas his previous six always had a chief ranger or a, a Park Service person as a, a major protagonist. And so while it takes place in the heart of Canyonlands in Cataract Canyon, uh, it, it's missing the gray and green, which I kind of missed. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. oh, well, what the heck. <laughs> well, this about wraps it up. Uh, this hour has flown by. Mm -hmm. Radio Book Club, Hardback Radio, and your community radio station. Thanks so much to Jesse and to Sherry for spending your hour with us as we continue learning the world of literature. Thank you. Good night, all.